All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're looking now at a new section, verses 6 through 8. I'll call this Paul's reflection on his life. It's kind of like the last words that Paul shares about his life as he is facing um, the reality of his upcoming death. Last words are very important. People have, uh, and I got a whole bunch of them that I'm not going to read to you because they're sort of silly and I don't want to go through that kind of stuff. But uh, what people say about their life and stuff. I, know, I do remember this, that Sigmund Freud, when he uh, looked back over his life, he died of throat cancer. And he attributed the horrible death that he was undergoing to the Lord paying it back in his blasphemous language. He was very blasphemous and harsh in his language. And so uh, uh, when you're facing death, it makes you look, think in reality about your life. And that's what Paul does here in this text. But before we look at the text, I want to just have a word of prayer. So let's go. Father, we do thank you for your mercy and your grace. Life is brief. We think of it as, as plenty of time when we we're young, but it goes by very rapidly. And here I am now, 76, looking back over life that seems to have just gone by quickly. I don't feel it, but I know that the, my birth certificate makes it clear. We know how old we are, and we know that we're not going to be here forever. When I first get up in the morning, I know I can see that the process of having sore knees and struggling to walk around like a person that's not drunk. But as we as, uh, reflect over our life, it makes me think more seriously about you, about your mercy, about your grace, about your goodness to me. Thank you for this text that we're looking at this morning. We'll start this morning looking at it, and I thank you for the one whose life is being reflected upon here, the Apostle Paul, and uh, as he's writing to Timothy to encourage them. Thank you for this time. I pray you'll bless it, Father, to our hearts, to our lives, that you'll speak to us from your word, and you'll do it for your glory. We want you to be exalted. We pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Paul, looking back over his life, says this. I'm going to read the text. It's only three verses. Verse 6 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is come. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on me, to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul does, I guess, what most of us do if we're faced with imminent death. We look around, we're, we're, we're faced with that possibility. I have a physical coming up in July with the doctors I go every year. Every year and every time I go, I'm sort of uh, thinking, now, am I going to hear some kind of uh, prognosis that I have a brain tumor or well, maybe not brain tumor? tumor in my head and have some kind of problem or whatever. You know, you face those kind of realities because the life is passing. And it, if the time comes when you hear that, and it will eventually, you hear something that you consider to be bad news. It makes you face reality. Paul does that. And then uh, after looking around him at the circumstances, he looks back over his life, and then he looks forward to the future. Those kind of three directions. We're going to start here this morning by looking at Paul as uh, he is looking now at the reality of facing death. He has a concern 
in prison there in that very uncomfortable situation. He is concerned for the church that he's been working with, the church at Ephesus. He's ministered there for some time. He's been gone a while, but he's also left Timothy there, and Timothy has, has uh, been doing the work. And so he's concerned about that church, about the influence of false teachers, about those that have been teaching or will be teaching doctrines of demons, speaking hypocrisy, uh, speaking lies in hypocrisy. And Paul knows that after his death, savage wolves are going to come in. They're going to uh, draw much of, many of the people away for, them, for themselves. And he's concerned about that. He's concerned for Timothy. Uh, he's been encouraging Timothy not to be timid, uh, to be willing to endure hardship, to preach the word, to be ready in season, out of season. And so in a sense, here in this dire set of circumstances, this concern is not so much for him, even though he's uncomfortable and uh, he's, he's going through some difficulties, but his concern is for the church and for Timothy. And so he's taking the time to really try to communicate that to him. And uh, it is a, a, a mark, I think a good mark of Paul, that he is concerned for things other than himself, which to me just points out that none of us in this world are islands unto ourselves. Sometimes we think we are. Sometimes I, I struggle with that. I, I have nothing to be proud about, and yet I can be proud. I can be arrogant and be self-centered and go through life thinking that the world owes me a living. It does not. And um, it's easy, perhaps, to do that. But Paul is here, and he's thinking about others. And we have been blessed. I have been blessed, and you have been blessed with the sacrifice and the commitment and the dedication that other people have given that has produced fruit that you profit from and you benefit from. And uh, that's the same with me. And Paul is doing that here, and we're going to look at that example in his life briefly. Um, he is encouraging Timothy to endure, um, to, to recognize there are difficult times coming, uh, but you to focus, focus on your own ministry, to endure hardship, be sober at all things, fulfill your ministry, um, because my life is coming to an end. I won't be there. And so it's, it's a sad time. It's a sobering time. But as we get into the text, which I've already started, back in verse 6, Paul, looking around at the circumstances, says, "When I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. That reflection there of already being poured out as a drink offering is a strange thing in one, one sense to say, we understand what he's doing, that he's referring to the, the, sacrifice, the sacrifice of the drink offering um, in the Old Testament. And I went through and I found out, for example, in Numbers 15, where the writer to this uh, is next to Leviticus Numbers, one of the first four books in the Old Testament written by Moses, writes about the sacrifices and he talks about the burnt offering. <coughs> Um, as one of the offerings, he talks about um, grain offering as one of the offerings, and he talks about the drink offering, and uh, in talking about the drink offering, which is uh, an offering, he said, is made with the uh, drink offering, you use one-fourth of a hen uh, with the burnt offering for the sacrifice of the lamb or ram, and it's, poured, it's actually poured on the sacrifice, and it gives off a, a steam, 
which is said to be a, a good aroma to the Lord. And so that's part of the offering in the Old Testament. Part of it was a drink offering, which is kind of, if you go through that, and I didn't read that text in Numbers, quite a few of them. Also in Exodus, let me read that to you to give you an idea of some of the detail that the writer goes through. In Exodus 25, the writer says, God is, is, is precise in some of the descriptions. I remember Rick, Rick, you may be online, I don't know if you're listening to it, but I remember Rick saying in reading through the book of Leviticus, he was impressed with the detail of all the measurements of the various aspects of the furniture and the measurements of the curtains and the description of the tabernacle that was built and other things. And that's borne out in many passages, but the one I'm going to read is Exodus 25, 23, where he says, you shall make a table of acacia wood two cubits long and one cubic wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make it for... You shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it, and you shall make a gold border for the rim around it, and you shall make four gold rings for it and put rings on the four corners, which are on its four feet. <coughs> the rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes. Listen to this. This is the passage I want to get to. You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars with its bowls with which you pour the drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you can go on reading. Here are the bowls that are used for pouring out the drink offerings. And they're all given by description. And I think the process here is to show us, or at least to help us understand that God is very careful about how we approach it that we, we're not approaching him our way, but we come to him his way. And the only approach we can really make to God the Father is through his son, who he has provided as a sacrifice for us. John 14, 6 says what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so um, this is precise. God is precise. Here are the descriptions of the sacrifice some of the sacrifices. There is a drink offering, and in the furniture there are bowls that are used to pour out the drink offerings at the right way and the right time to worship the Lord. Now, having said that, and what we're doing is we're painting a picture of Paul who said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and I'm probably going to get into a little bit more I don't know if detail, but dig a little bit deeper because to me, it's important to see what I think Paul is saying here. So to do that, I want to go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 28. And I just want to remind you of a situation that occurred in two passages with one of the patriarchs. Now we have the first Jewish patriarch, if you will, was Abraham. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Um, she was barren for a long time. She took her, her uh, handmaid, Hagar, and Abraham had relations and produced uh, a son, but it was not the son of the promise. And then finally, the Lord opened her womb, and it, it, she was up in her 90s, and, and she bore a son, Isaac. So Abraham was the patriarch, then his son, Isaac, 
And God gave Abraham a promise that he was going to give a land and a blessing, and he was going to make him a blessing to all the families of the earth. His, his, uh, he was going to be the father of a multitude of people that would number like the sand of the sea. Well, to Abraham was born Isaac. God confirmed that same promise to Isaac. So you have Abraham, Isaac. Isaac had two boys, twins, remember? Uh, Isaac, uh, the servant, Abraham's servant, went up to Haran and got a member of um, the, the family from which Abraham came, and uh, they were married. And so Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was from that area, from the family. And so Isaac and Rebecca had two boys. They were twins. They struggled in her womb, and she was concerned about that. She prayed about it. And the Lord said, your two nations are in your womb. And contrary to tradition, tradition was that the oldest one, who happened to be Esau, who was born, I don't know how much long, maybe a minute or so, two minutes, I don't know, but uh, it wasn't long that uh, Esau was born. The tradition was that the younger, the second, the younger would serve the older. So, for example, if uh, Sabrina and Brianna were boys, they said not, obviously, but if they were, then Sabrina would be serving you. You would have the double portion, and she would be kind of serving to you. But the Lord, in this case, was reversing that. And in this case, he said that the younger, who was Jacob, is going to serve the older. That's God's design. That's the Lord's intention. That's the way he did it. And so that was what he had said. So here is this, this uh, picture now of these two brothers, the older one who should normally have been the one that was to be served, uh, despised his birthright. And he took it lightly, and the things that were should be taken in his life were so, somewhat taken lightly. He was a man of the field. He would fit in real good with the Katzenberger plant because he was an outdoorsman. He liked to hunt, and he was going out all the time. Jacob, on the other hand, was at home a lot. I wouldn't say he was a mama's boy, but he was at home a lot. He was taking care of things at home. And so there, there's a big contrast between them. Isaac loved his son Esau and wanted to pass the blessing on to his son, even though God had said it should go to the, to the youngest one. And so Rebecca heard that, heard Isaac say to his son, go and go out and hunt for me, get me the animal that I'd really like to eat, come and prepare it for me and give me a big feast, and then I'm gonna give you the blessing. And when Rebecca heard that, she called her son uh, Jacob and said, quick, come on in, honey. Uh, this is what your father's planning on doing. Uh, you, you're supposed to have the blessing, so we're going to, I'm going to fix the dish for him like he likes. You take it in there, tell him that you pretend to <clears throat> Esau, and you get the blessing. That's what he did, and uh, he was successful in that, but then shortly afterwards, Esau heard about, learned about that, and he went to his father, and seeing that his father had already eaten the feast and had blessed the wrong son. His father was blind, that's why he couldn't see. So anyway, I'm trying to make a long story short, and a long story short is this, Esau was furious with his brother, and he said, when my father is dead, I don't know how long it's going to be, when he dies, he's, he's not doing well now, I'm going to kill him. Jacob, I'm going to kill him. Well, Rebecca heard that. She said, come here, get your stuff together. I want you to go up home and just run away from your brother until he calms down. All right, so here we go. In the passage I want to read to you is Genesis 28. And we're building a case now for the pouring out of the blessing that Paul is talking about. I don't want to lose that. That's the, the, the kind of the, the carrot before our 
research. That's what we're going through. So here's here's Jacob. Jacob is now in Genesis 28:10. Is running from his brother Esau. He leaves Beersheba and he heads uh, north to Haran. And it says in verse 10, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went north to Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there. Now just stop there for just one moment. Put yourself in his shoes. I can't find any indication in this text that was anybody with him. He was all alone. Now, it, there may be somebody with him, but there is no indication. When Abraham sent his servant back up here before to get a wife for his son Isaac, the servant went, there is no indication that anybody was with him either until you get up to Haran, and when he's up in Haran and they are making preparations for Abraham's servant to spend the night. He says, we'll get fodder for your donkeys and water to wash your feet and the feet of your men. So there, there were some people that accumulated, that, that accompanied the servant of Abraham. He went, he went north. And it's kind of subtle, but it does seem to indicate. But here, I don't think there's anybody with him. So here is, here is Jacob all alone, running for his life from his brother, going up to an area that he's never been before. It's desert country. It's bleak. Um, he doesn't know the family he's going to go to. You've got to put yourself in his shoes. You, you girls have been off to college. You know, when I went off to college down at Pembroke University, and I got there, and my family pulled up, and we got everything. We went into the dorm room. It was summertime, and the windows were open. There were a couple of guys that had stereos. They were playing music in the dorm, and you know what it's like. And we went up and I put stuff in there and mom and then we we talked for maybe an hour and then finally they got in the car and they drove off and they drove off, watched the car and they went down to the edge of the campus and on out the road and finally was out of sight. And now I'm all alone. And that's it's a lonely feeling. Even though there were lots of people around there, and I already introduced, been introduced to several of them, and some of the other guys were coming around. This was my first year there, and so it was a it's a lonely feeling. And you just think about Jacob out here in the desert, all alone with the, the, the supplies he was able to bring and stuff. And he's out there, and he gets uh, it gets dark, and you look up and you see the vast expanse of the stars. You might hear a sound of some animal or something in the, in the round side. It's kind of a, a, a terrifying thing. But there he is. He spends the night, and it says, because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place, and he put under, it under his head, and he lay down in that place. Then he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God. And notice the word behold, because whenever you see the word behold, it just means that this is something, believe it or not. Look at this. This is, this is impressive. And so it says, behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on this ladder that he was dreaming about, that he was dreaming that he was here, and he saw this ladder reaching up into heaven with God and the angels. And it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it. And the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. So here is now this third generation, third patriarch out here all alone. But all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, in this darkness, way out here in the wilderness, God is confirming to him these promises that he's made to Abraham, grandfather, and Isaac. His father. I am the God of your of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants 
your descendants also will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out. Believe it or not, you will spread out to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and in you all the descendants shall, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is the same blessing God gave to Abraham. Through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. God is renewing that covenant that he made to Abraham, and then he renewed it with Isaac, and now he's renewing it with Jacob, even though Jacob is out here in the wilderness running for his life, not knowing what's going to happen. All of a sudden, God says, I'm going to make sure that you're going to fulfill this promise that I've made to Abraham, your grandfather. Behold, I am with you. That would be an encouragement. And I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. What a night to remember uh, being out there. In one, morning, in one time he's alone in dark out in his wilderness. And all of a sudden things have opened up, turned completely around. God has spoken to him. What a privilege that is this dream and God has renewed the covenant to him and he recognized it and he said this is the place where God is he was afraid how awesome is this place this is none other than and he calls it the house of God and this is the gate of heaven and Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone which he had put under his head and set it up as a pillow like a memorial and he poured oil on its top and here's the passage I wanted to just point out to you this is this oil out there in the desert, when you're by yourself, is very important. You, in the 23rd Psalm, oil is used to anoint the head of the sheep. It makes the skin, and that heat keeps it from drying out too much. It can be used as somewhat of a medicinal, it's very valuable. Take something of that value and take it and, and pour it on that stone like that out there in the desert. Is, it almost seems crazy. It almost seems like a waste, doesn't it? It's like the the girl that, that uh, came to Jesus and took this very valuable perfume and poured it on him, it seemed like an extravagant, it is an extravagant, extravagant pouring out of something valuable in a situation where can you afford to, to get rid of something so valuable like this. But Jacob recognized this was a very significant place and a very significant event and was a way of worshiping God and it was a way of expressing from his heart, how much he appreciated it and what it meant to him. So he was doing that. He poured that oil on him, on that, on that stone, on its top, and he called the name of the place Bethel, House of God. Later on, about 25 years later, now this is just jumping ahead. I'm moving quickly because we don't have a lot of time. But from this point, Jacob goes on up. He gets two wives, and God gives him uh, 12 sons. Or, Eleven sons, he gets, has another one coming back. He gives him a family. And coming back 25 years later, about 25 years, I don't know for sure. We know that he had two wives, and he worked seven years for each one of them. That's 14 years. And then if you have all the sons, it's another 10 years. So it's about 25 years or so. In, in my figure, I may be wrong, and you may be able to come and show me where I'm wrong, but it's quite a while later. He, God calls him up there in Haran, and it says in Genesis 35 now, instead of Genesis 28, Genesis 35, God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. What's Bethel? That's where you were when you came up here. Remember that? That's where you stopped. That's where you left the pillar. That's where I met with you. That's where you, you met me, the house of God, the gate of heaven. That's that place, that special place. Rise, get up, go to Bethel. 
and live there and make an altar there uh, to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Make an altar because an altar is a place of worship. So you need to prepare yourself, go back um, to meet me, okay, to, to spend time with me. And by the way, just in passing also, I can just interject this. Here are two times where Jacob has been alone with God. And God, this one, and then the time when he wrestled with God, remember that? He wrestled with him. That's a very significant time as well. And just to me, it, it shows the importance of, of having time in which you can get alone with the Lord. The lots of distractions, the lots of things going on. I was used to, used to be bad for doing with radio on or music on when I was studying. And I remember my mother would say, and dad would say too sometimes, cut that off so you can study constantly. I like to listen to the music and stuff. But it is better. You cut all that distractions off. You get along with God. And that's what, that's what he's going back to Bethel, uh, which is an interesting slogan. Well, back to Bethel. Uh, when, you, when you fled to him. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you. There were little emblems and uh, earrings and pens and things that are superstitious things. Put those things away. Why? Because we're going back to the place where I met God. He's holy. We're not going to tolerate these things. These things are going to have to get out. We're going to have to get rid of these things. So he did. He ended up burying them. Uh, put away these things from you. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. In other words, this is a time of serious conversation. Let us arise and let us go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there that's for the purpose of worshiping God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had had, the rings which are on the ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near the near Shechem as they journeyed. And there was a great terror upon the cities around them. Why? Because the cities around them saw that Jacob and his and he had a big big company. He had a lot of sheep, a lot of people that were working with him now, and so there was a lot of uh, respect or fear in other people when they saw him coming. Um, so, so Jacob came to Luz, that is to Bethel which is the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel, that is the house that is the God of Bethel, because the God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And now Deborah, Deborah Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. And it was, uh, it was named Alan Becca. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram, and he blessed him. And God said, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel, and God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. So again, he's giving this covenant back to him. He says, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken. And Jacob now set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken and with, and with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering, this time wine on it. And he also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. So the point is, all of that is to say this. And I, I know I've drugged you through this thing. But this is a very significant event in Jacob's life. To take something of this value, the oil and the wine, which is normally used in sacrifice, and to pour that out on that pillar is a way of consecration, and uh, it's a way of, extra it is, it is an extravagant display. Um, 
and it shows how meaning, how important it is. There are other times, by the way, in Scripture where there's this extravagant display of pouring something out, and that's what it is an extravagant display. There are other times when it is when there is an extravagant display. And I was thinking of one place in particular that you'll be familiar with, and that's Revelation, where there are seven bowls that God pours out. And, and just let that sink in to you. In fact, I'm going to read one. I just read one of them. Revelation 16, 4 and 6, talks about these seven bowls. And one of them, the third one, it says, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers. And notice, this is wrath. This is not God giving a few little drops of wrath. This is God pouring out his wrath, dumping it. And it is big, it's hot, it's dangerous, it's severe. It says the third angel poured out his wrath upon the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one. Because you judged these things. Why? They poured out. The blood of the saints of the prophets. Those people that we're pouring wrath on now have poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. That doesn't mean they just killed a few. It means that they have ravaged. They have really been violent. They have really gone through and they've slaughtered and it's been indiscriminate, without mercy, without any thought, just killing and killing and killing like you would show, throw animals into a meat grinding machine or something, just pouring out their blood. And you have given them, well, that, you have given them blood to drink. So here's this one picture, God pouring out wrath, an excessive display. But there's another, a good one that I'll share with you quickly, that we see a picture of the goodness of God and the pouring out of his wrath. And that's found in Acts chapter, not pouring out of his wrath, the pouring out of his blessing, really. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching a sermon. Remember that? The very first thing in Peter in uh, Acts chapter 2 says, uh, he's taking his stand with the 11. He's raised his voice. He's declaring to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what is spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will give my spirit in slow measure to the people. He didn't say that. He says, I will pour forth my spirit. I will pour forth my spirit. That's the same terminology used in Joel. Back over in Joel, uh, chapter 2, Joel 28, 2, 28, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. God says, I'm going to, what I'm doing is he's not going to be, in fact, he uses that text there when, when Peter when he's talking to Peter about that, he says, I want you see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was came upon, was when people were anointed with for special tasks. Sam, the, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson and he did this, or the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon this person, he did that. But he says, Now he's going to be poured forth indiscriminately to those who know me, so that um, all mankind, so that your sons and your daughters, they belong to me. The Holy Spirit will come upon them, be poured upon them. Your young men shall see dreams, and your old men shall dream dreams. It's not just the young, not just the old, but all who know me, young and old alike, the Spirit will be poured out on them. Bond slaves, both men and women, free and slaves. If they know me, the Holy Spirit will be 
poured out upon them. That's excessive grace. That's the goodness of God's mercy that his grace is coming upon us. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, not in the upper room, yeah, in, in John, I forget now the chapter where he said, he, it says in the text that Jesus breathed on them and told the disciples receive the Holy Spirit because he's going to be coming in a few days. And uh, that used to bother me. It sounded kind of gross, you know, breathing on somebody, you have bad breath. It's, you know, it's kind of, we're looking at it from our standpoint, but you know, in the text, the scripture, the Old Testament, God breathed on man, he became a living soul. Here, God's breathing on them and he's telling them, not breathing physically, but breathing and telling them to receive the Holy Spirit because he's coming. God is doing a different thing. He's working among the people and he's pouring out his blessing upon, among the people. And so, he says, I will pour out my spirit um, in Acts 2, 33. Uh, having, Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. That's Acts 2, 33. In Acts chapter 10, if you remember when the, the, Holy, when the gospel began to spread to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans, uh, Peter, some of the, the apostles went up, for example, for the Gentiles in Acts 10, 45. And it says that all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Why were they amazed? They, because these are Gentiles. They were amazed because now the gospel is being spread to the Gentiles. And here's what they said. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. What? Yep. God loves the Jews. God loves the Gentiles. And he gives his Holy Spirit both to the Jews and to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans. And that's kind of what Proverbs says. Proverbs says uh, in Proverbs 1.23, Terms of my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. So this is, this is the picture. Paul is saying, I've been poured out. He uses that same phrase, by the way, with the Philippian church. Um, he says, uh, I am being... Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. He's talking to the Philippians. He says, your service, your life, your ministry uh, is like a sacrifice to God. And I am part of the drink offering that's being poured out on that service and that ministry of yours to God. I am a sacrifice being poured out on you. And uh, so I am that, I am that sacrifice, if you will, that is being poured out. In Romans, one more verse dealing with that, not one more verse, but a very important verse where Romans, Paul writes in Romans 15, listen to this. He says, and concerning you, my brothers, Paul is writing to, to believers at Rome. He says, now, just concerning you, I myself, I am convinced that you're good. Here's what he says. You're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. You're able to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace given to me. So Paul is recognizing that God's grace has been given to him, calling him as an apostle, putting him up as a leader. That's God's grace. God's grace has been given to me as an apostle, so I'm reminding you of that position I have that comes about because God's grace has been poured out of my life. God's grace has been given to me as a minister of Christ, as a servant of Christ, to the Gentiles, I'm ministering as a priest. I'm taking the gospel. That's what he's talking about. I minister the gospel of God. I minister as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles, that is, that my work among you 
is given to God as an offering. I'm giving my ministry to you Gentiles. You and your response is being given to God as an offering. My offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So this language of giving sacrificially and serving the Lord is throughout the scriptures. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Um, he says um, in Ephesians, therefore, be imitators of God. This is what we have to do. Imitators of God, imitate God, be like God as beloved children. Walk in love, Christ as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God in the fragrant aroma. I wish I could stop and, and preach on that verse because it's important. Christ is our example. He gave himself up to God as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma before God. And we are to be following that example. We serve God. And so that's kind of what Paul is saying here when he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm being sacrificed as a drink offering. Lord, by the way, the little pronoun I is emphatic. And that means Paul is using this his name in, in a kind of a contradistinction to his friends who were sacrificing themselves, um, his, his friends who were saving themselves, who were kind of dodging him. Um, I think Weiss says this. He says, Paul has had, had his preliminary hearing before Nero and was expecting this final one and death. And Paul knew that he would not be crucified for citizens of Rome can be crucified. So the death penalty, if it was demanded, which it probably would be, would be by the state and would be decapitation and his head would be severed from his body. And when that happens, his blood's going to be poured out. So that's a graphic way of just saying that his blood, his life is going to be poured out. And he knew that. And he says here, the time of my departure has come. Obviously, uh, Paul knew he was going to have a little bit of time left over because he's asking Timothy to come visit him and to bring his parchments and stuff. But he also knew that the time was coming and that he, would, he, had, he had one hearing, he had one more, and that hearing would condemn him. Nero was a fanatic about these things. And uh, so Paul sensed that he was in the final season of his life. Um, and uh, Paul has been like the spiritual catalyst. He's like the progenitor for all of those who regenerate Gentiles, the one that's been instrumental in bringing so many Gentiles to Christ. He has been the example, the motivator, the worker, the prayer warrior that has sacrificed over and over again. He's made these trips. He's worked with Timothy. He's worked with Titus. He's worked with Barnabas. He's worked with so many. Um, we know that he was there suffering in this very vile place, uh, in this prison. There he sat, abandoned, if you will, by the friends. He was in chains. At least that's what he says to Onesimus. was not ashamed of my chains. Uh, he had horrible circumstances of hunger and exposure and at the time of his greatest need. Here he sits without his friends in cold, bleak prison cell, soon to face Nero's certain sentence of death. And uh, it's, it's a hard thing to see this because here's one of the greatest men who ever walked the planet, a man who sacrificed so much for us and so many others. And he'd given his life, and he gave his life gladly. He, didn't, he wasn't trying to protect his life. He was giving his life gladly, and at this time he was concerned with the church and Timothy. And that just makes me ask the question, uh, to whom are you indebted? Parents, I think of that. I, I can think of everybody here. This is, this is obvious fact, but you know, you know it. 
if you take a little baby and lay him down in the bed or lay him outside, if somebody doesn't take care of that baby dies, the fact that you're alive means somebody has taken care of you. Somebody has worked in your life to provide for you and to nurture you. And if you have an education, they provide an education for you. If you have clothes, they try to provide for that for you. And they, they, you're indebted to people. You're indebted to teachers, teachers that have cared for you. I know that I've had someone, I know Pete talked about Miss Newton in school who really worked with him. And uh, he has a great debt to her. She was worked with him. She cared for him. Not all teachers care. A lot of teachers want to leave, uh, seem to be obsessed with funny things. But those that are good really give themselves, and they are really concerned for the welfare. Your siblings, you have brothers or your sisters or other family members, aunts and uncles, people that someone, somebody just takes you out of their wing and is concerned for you, and they spend time with you. I had my neighbor. I've been praying for a little boy on that trip. And the other day I came in, I, and uh, I was walking down, and I heard, Peter! And I, turned, I thought it was one of the girls over there across the way. It turned out it was Tripp behind me, and he came over there, and he spent about 20 minutes just sitting there talking. I've been praying for him like crazy, so I'm going to, when we start getting back to normal, I'm going to maybe go out for peace or something with him. I'm so busy, but he, I've really been praying for him. He's going to come to VBS if I can get him to come. But it's important what you do with your life and how you put your life. You see what I'm saying? Invest your life in other people. Because people are important. They really are. And, and uh, that, that God cares for people. Um, who do you, do you, do you owe something to the police who, somewhere in a day now when people are being, lives are being poured out, policemen are getting shot. They're putting their lives on the line for our welfare, our safety. We owe them a great debt. The people in the military, we do that. We think of the military as being, well, they are harsh. You have to be harsh because you're dealing with a rough kind of lifestyle. You have to do that. You have to have that discipline. Church leaders. Sunday school teachers, pastors, evangelists, other people that are working. Uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to them. I owe a, a massive debt to John MacArthur and to the work that he's done there because he has really, really helped me insofar as his teaching. Look at what, just look at the, the MacArthur Study Bible and the, the notes, just every single verse in the Bible has notes about it, all kinds of commentary on it. And he did that. And that's a, that's a, a monumental work, a sacrificial work. We have that kind of debt that we owe people that have given themselves to us. Um, we have things that we have inherited, like freedom. Freedom doesn't come free. Somebody has paid for it. Much of our freedom that we enjoy has come about by people who put their lives on the line. Uh, the, uh, the things that we possess, we talk about Debbie and Dory and others using their cell phone a lot. But somebody had to, to sacrifice to provide those things. And those things that we use, we like. Uh, transportation, being, a, being able to drive and get around. Somebody's had to provide those things. Uh, education, um, the computer, the internet. We're using the internet here. It didn't come free. We owe people a lot for what people have given sacrificially. Our good health, the farmers that provide the food, uh, those that work hard to help pay for that. Um, we owe a debt, and one of the things that we don't think about a lot of times is the reformers in the church, those that have uh, really put their lives on the line. I think of Martin Luther, one that comes to mind, and but there are others, um, Wycliffe and Tyndall and many that have put their so much sacrificial, sacrifice so much um, to give us spiritual life and spiritual hope and spiritual direction. And we just have an internal, a, a massive a great debt that we owe people that they've given so much to us. So that's the question. 
who do you owe? What do you owe? And what are you doing for who do you live for? What is your purpose for life? What is my purpose for life? Is it just for me? Is it just my little world? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this man, Paul, and for his example and for his life. And help us to follow it, I pray. In Jesus' name.